0: Amen, friends. Let's do this. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can reach down. You can grab that. You're going to want one. Mark chapter 7 in the Blue Bible starts on page 934. Page 934 in the Blue Bible. We've been in this series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue it this morning. We're going to continue it all the way up until Easter. That's where we're going to be. And so... Uh, as you're flipping there, uh, here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the Word of God. It's a precious gift from His hands, and it, it, it's a source of life and delight and joy. And so in an honor and reverence of the gift, would you stand with me as I read it for us this morning? Mark 7, Mark 7, it's kind of a long text for us this morning, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Mark 7, 1 through 30, 1 through 30 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash their hands. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots Copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, What well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain did they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. For he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, of God, Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father, or mother, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition, that is, you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And went away, and from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone. This is the word of the Lord. You guys have a seat. It was a long one. And we're going to unpack all of that together this morning. Um, in the 1500s, uh, Blaise Pascal he, he wrote the Pensées de Pascal, the Thoughts of Pascal. He's a French mathematician and philosopher and theologian, and, and he writes this. He, he says all of humanity's problems. Everything, everything, everything that's going on in the world, all of the de- destruction and all of the, the fighting and all of the rage and everything that happens between you and your kids and you and your spouse and you and your friends and you and your coworkers, all of our problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. All of it. All of it. If you think about it, right, he, he has a point when we think about the punishment for criminals, right? We put them in jail, and when they act up in jail, we put them in solitary confinement. This is intense punishment because we know, that we can't sit in a room alone with our thoughts. Because what happens when we're alone, and the Pansy State Pascal, a lot of it's addressing this idea of what we do is we divert our thoughts, we divert our minds to these. Lesser things, because we don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about who I am. I don't want to think about the problems of the world. I just want to divert my thoughts. And we still do this, right? But whether it's Netflix or social media or binging through the news or or whatever it may be, I I just want to take my mind off of this thing that is in me. It's constantly always there, this nagging thing that says, I'm not enough. And in every human being on the planet, and and from Pascal all the way to now, every human being, there's something in us that says, man, I'm just not enough. I'm not good enough. I I don't measure up. I'm not actually worthy. I know there's something in me that's off. There's something in me that's not okay, that I am actually unclean. And we spend our lives try, trying to kind of cover that up and to try to divert our minds from it. And, and, and every time, everywhere we look, like we are reminded of this fact. When we turn on social media and you see kind of the, the, the picture perfect people kind of posting their picture perfect moments, right? like, I, I'm just not that. When like super mom somehow gets all of her kids like dressed in like this coordinated wardrobe and she's feeding them these healthy granola snacks that she has somehow whipped up on her own in her way with her gluten free whatever. And you're just like, wait, how? Like I'm barely getting my kids out the door alive. Like how did you pull that off? Like I'm, some, I'm just not that. In our places of work, we're constantly rushing around, hurrying, trying to please everyone. And we don't want anybody to ever think less of us because we know in reality that what they think might be true. Constantly, we move through life, either working really, really hard, like we're type A, where it's like, I'm just never going to let anybody know. I'm going to prove everybody wrong. I'm going to prove this voice inside of me wrong that I, I am good enough. Or we kind of give ourselves over to it and we say, Yeah, that's just who I am. We kind of allow ourselves to kind of slip into a depression and say, I'm not good enough, and I know it. I'm not worthy, and I never will be. That's just who I am. But either way, that thing inside of us, it still exists. It's there for you, and it's there for me. And this morning in this text, I think Jesus kind of puts his finger on it, and he points, he says, here's the source of that. Like, the real source is right there here, and he's going to give it to us. But he's not just going to show us a source. He's going to show us a solution to it as well. How do we actually solve this? What are the things that we need to do in our life? What What is the solution to this problem? How do we solve it? It's all laid out, actually, in this text. And this text is, is confusing, especially when you break it apart and you kind of take it out of its context. So many people don't realize that these two stories that seem completely unrelated are completely and totally linked together, right? In both Matthew's account and Mark's account of these stories, they're linked together. This interaction with the Pharisees um, that goes completely wrong, And, and then this interaction with a woman, the Syrophoenician woman, right, they are actually meant to be linked together. They're comparing and contrasting each other. They're a demonstration of what exactly is wrong and how exactly that thing is solved. And so let's look at them. The first story, right, is the story of the Pharisees. The Pharisees um, publicly call out Jesus and his disciples, right? They say, man, why is it that some of your disciples, they've come all the way from Jerusalem, right, just to see what's going on with Jesus, just to kind of hear, what is this crazy teaching? What are these miracles that people are talking about? And they see his disciples eating with their hands without washing their hands, right? They say, why is it that your disciples are defiling themselves? Now, that language is not language of, I mean, there's not washing their hands, right? Washing your hands is before you eat is a, is a good thing to do, okay? Like, and we know that, right? right? But that's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about putting soap and water in their hands and singing happy birthday and then rinsing it off. That's not what they're talking about. You guys don't do that. You're supposed to. Um, says the doctors. Um, That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a religious ceremonially before God. In the eyes of God, you have defiled yourself because you did not wash your hands. That's what they're talking about. This is not, man, that's kind of gross and there's germs. No, you have defiled yourself before God. You see, they're pulling this from traditions that have been created through the history of Israel. In the laws of Moses, there were laws concerning ceremonially washing, right? Washing before the high priest consumes uh, the bread and the food that was presented to God as God It was set apart for Him, right? There's there's rules from that. But what's happened over time is that um, the forefathers of Israel have kind of have kind of taken this law and they've applied it to all people. So, I mean, everybody should do this before you eat, right? And if you don't, you are unacceptable in the eyes of God. It's not that you might have some germs on your hand and you might get sick from that. It's you're unacceptable in the eyes of God. And so what the Pharisees are doing in this moment is they're calling out Jesus and they're calling out the disciples to say, we're better than you are. If social media would have existed in first century Israel, the Pharisees would have posted pictures on Instagram of them like washing their hands and saying, look how good we are. Like we've got it all put together. as I'm washing my hands. Like It doesn't make any sense to us in our culture, but that's what it would have been. It's this outward expression of their purity, an outward declaration that I am right with God. And what they're saying publicly in front of everybody is those guys aren't. They're clearly not. And Jesus does not take this lightly. If if you if you notice his response, his response is fiery. Okay? Like we think of Jesus so often as this gentle, meek lowly man, and he was. I'm not, I'm not saying that he wasn't. He's, he's the God that says, man, let the children come to me. Right? He's the guy who's who leans in. He has kindness and mercy. and uh, it, That's who he is. But there's moments. There's moments where he flips tables. There's moments where he gets angry. And he is angry here. He lights them up. Like, just look at the language that, that he uses. Like, right out of the gate, um, in verse, um, where are we? Verse six, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Like, is that who he was talking about? He was talking about you guys, you, you hypocrites, right? When he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain did they worship me, teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of of men, and he goes on to even give more examples of how they've done this and how they've twisted uh, the commandments of God, and they've intermingled them with the with the commandments of men. And they've taught them as these as these truths of God. And He's like, it's not, it's not. There's exclamation points flying everywhere. He's yelling. He is fired up about this. And any time that we see Jesus getting fired up about something, we should, as followers of Jesus, say, Hang on. What's going on here? Like, what, it, what is getting our Savior so riled up? This is very, very important to Jesus. It's very important to Him. There's something going on here that He wants you to see, and He wants you to know. In fact, He, cr- he calls the, all the people over. He's like, man, you've got to get this. You have to understand this. He teaches them that God is not concerned with man-made pictures of purity and acceptance. Rather, he is concerned with an inward obedience of the heart. The heart is both the place of purity and impurity. It's the source of purity and acceptance. But it's also the source of all of our pain and all of our sorrow. And later he pulls the disciples in and the disciples are like, we don't get it. Okay, and maybe some of you are still there. Like you're like, I don't get it either. Uh, So Jesus gets even more graphic. Like he he is leaning hard into this. Here's what he says to the disciples, uh, starting in verse 18. He said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Like, you you really don't get it? Like, no, why can't anybody get this? Do you not see that whatever goes into into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled Jesus is literally saying, you have all these rules on food and washing. Don't you realize that none of that stuff outside of you can actually defile you? Because it's going into your stomach, and then you're pooping it out. That's what he's saying, okay? That's what he's saying. He's like, don't you realize it's going in you and coming out you? And like, it's not doing anything to you. It's not changing. It's not defiling you. He's being graphic, and he's, he's trying to get this into the thick skulls of the disciples, And then he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts. Out of the heart of man comes sexual immorality. Out of the heart comes theft. Out of the heart comes murder. Out of the heart comes adultery. Out of the heart comes coveting. Out of the heart comes wickedness. Out of the heart comes deceit and lies. Out of the heart comes sensuality. Out of the heart comes envy. Out of the heart comes slander. Out of the heart comes pride. Out of the heart comes foolishness. And all these evil things come from within. And they, they are what defiles a person. So what is the real problem of the world? Every problem. What's the real problem? Every Everything that we deal with, whether it's going on in your house or it's going on across the globe, what is the real problem? When you turn on the television right now, if you went home and turned on the news, right, what is what is the news saying the problem of the world is right now? Okay, what's the problem though? You can say it. It's a safe space. Nine fifteen nailed it. What's the problem? Okay, Putin, Russia, Russia's the The Russians are always the problem since like the eighties. Okay, right? The Russians are the problem. Putin's the problem. Them commies are the problem. That's the problem. Communism, right? But the reality is, right. None of those things are actually the problem. Okay, and I'm not saying that they're good. I'm not saying that they're not that, that we shouldn't that we shouldn't fight against that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand up against that. I'm saying that's not the problem. The Putin is not the problem. The Russians are not the problem. Communism is not the problem. Socialism is not the problem. It's not the problem. The problem you can look at it all day long, but you're looking at the wrong thing. When the problem is right here. It's in me. It's in you. The human heart is the problem. All of that. All of that is just the cape. The matador is right here. Right? Why is it that the matador can get into this arena with, with this beast that has got a thousand pounds on him, that is faster and quicker and stronger and more deadly than he is in every way. And still, most of the time, most of the time, the matador wins. Why? The Matador has the cape. He can trick, trick the bull into his own death. And this is exactly what Satan does with the human heart. He points outside of us. The, you're not the problem. You're not the problem. That's the problem. Go fix that. Go chase that. And so we have the cape. We have all these different capes. We have the cape of social media. It says, "Man, the problem is you just got to lose a few pounds." You just need to put on a few pounds. you got to get stronger. If you're just a little prettier, if you're just a little more handsome, if you're just a little bit more interesting, if you had a little bit better hobbies, if you're a little bit more adventurous, then everything would be solved. But here's the question. Are those things inside or are they outside? They're outside of you. And therefore, they're just a cape. Constantly pursuing things that are never actually going to fix the problem. The cape of religion says, if you could just, you know, not watch rated R movies, if you could just wait till you're married to have sex, if you could just do the things that are going to please God, if you could just not curse and you could go to church and you could uh, volunteer and kind of fill all the roles that you're supposed to fill as a good little religious person, then God would be pleased enough with you and he would remove all of your problems. But are those things internal things or are they external things? External things, just a cape chasing the cape of religion. In the meanwhile, Satan's just stabbing you constantly. And you're like, why? The cape of politics. So if we could just elect the right person, if we could just build the right social programs, if we could just get our science and apply it to our lives or get technology to kind of raise us up out of this and we could live above all of this mess, then we would be free from this. But are those internal things or are they external things? External things. It's not going to solve it. It's not going to solve it. And I'm not the one saying that Jesus is saying this. It's just a cape. It's not going to solve anything. The cape of success says that, man, if you could just land the dream job, and if you could just get it all right, and you could make enough money, that you could retire early, and you could buy the perfect house, and all the toys, and then you wouldn't have to worry about all these problems of life because you would be financially above all of that. But are those things internal things or are they external things? They're external things. It's just a cape, it's just another cape. All of it's coming to being produced from within us. All these lies, these idols are being produced within us. And our hearts and our minds are saying, chase that, chase that, chase that, chase that. And reality is the matador is right here. And it's creating the capes. John Calvin, the great theologian and reformer, said the human mind is a forge of idols, a factory just turning them out, just turning out these idols, saying, chase that, chase that, chase that, like this is going to make you better, this is going to make you feel better, this is going to make you feel better, this is going to be, all these idols in our heart is just going for it, right? I love Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher and theologian, he's passed away now, but He said this in his book, The Renovation of the Heart. He said, A carefully cultivated heart will, assisted by the grace of God, foresee, forestall, or transform most of the painful situations before which others stand like helpless children saying, Why? I love this quote. What Willard is saying is this. He's saying, If you can carefully cultivate your heart, By the grace of God, you ain't going to do this alone. You're going to fail, okay? We need the Spirit of Christ to awaken this in us and to cultivate our hearts. But if you can carefully cultivate your heart, you will foresee. You're going to see the capes. You're going to forestall. You're going to stop the capes. Or you're going to completely transform these false things. All these things that the rest of the world is kind of standing there crying, why? Why? Like, why? I, I did it. I pursued it. I chased after it. and I'm still getting stabbed. Why am I still in pain? I did all the right things. Why am I still sorrow? The rest of the world is, is chasing capes, and they're never actually relieving this internal woe. They're never actually getting to the heart of the problem. Moby, the recording artist, right? The musician, recording artist, Moby. Anybody know about Moby? Kids, ask your parents. Uh, he was popular in the early 2000s, M- Moby. And I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago. Um, it has nothing to do with Moby, but Moby was uh, on the podcast and he was like being interviewed by one of his friends and they were sitting down, kind of having this heart to heart. And, uh, I- anyways. M- Moby, in 2001, um, was, the, was the pinnacle of his success in his career. He won that year. He won the MTV Music Award for the best uh, music video, which is like, that's the award. If you're running the MTV Music, music Award, that's, that's the one, right? So he, he wins the, the award. And uh, the night before, he says, man, I, I performed a sold-out show to thousands of people, thousands and that night, MTV put me up in this private, exclusive penthouse suite. And this hotel had three of them. We had a private elevator, and we went to these three suites. And the other two were uh, given to these unbelievable, like, famous rock stars of, like, all time. And then I'm in the third one. It's like this insane experience. And the next night, he says, I've got another show that I'm going to go perform. And he sold, at this point, over 10 million albums. Over 10 million at this point. There's no place. He gets in this place where there's no place else to go. He is at the top of the mountain. There's nothing above him. He has got, at the time, he's dating Natalie Portman, right? So he's got the girl. He's got the, he's got the success. He's got the money. He's got it, oh, all these celebrities he's hanging out with. Like There's nothing. There's no everything that he was chasing. He has achieved. He said that night. I walked around in this massive penthouse trying to find a window that I could open and none of them would open, but all I wanted to do was to jump out. And if I could have found a window that would open, I would have have jumped out and I killed myself that night. Because he had conquered the cape, but he hadn't conquered the matador. He had done it all, but it didn't solve any of his problems. This is the lie of Satan. This is the reality. This is what Jesus is so fiery about. He says, you don't understand. You're selling these people a bag of lies. It's not true. Like all the things that the Pharisees and scribes are trying to get the people to chase after. Jesus like, stop. Like you're destroying them. And for so many of us, we're allowing these things of culture. Satan's doing the same thing. It's destroying us. And some of you will get to the top. And you realize that there's nothing there. The source of our uncleanness is the human heart. And it will not be satisfied by anything this world has to offer us. And we as followers of Jesus, and maybe you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. I just want to God. then you need to be awakened to that. Like, there's no point in your life where, you're, where you finally found it, bought it, acquired it, and you've arrived. And you say, I've, I've solved it. You can keep numbing it and you can keep diverting it, but it's always going to be there. All the problems of the world come from the human heart. So the question is, how do we cultivate our hearts? A carefully cultivated heart will, assisted by the grace of God, will foresee, forestall, and transform most of the painful situations, right? How do we cultivate that heart? How do we do that? I'm going to give you two things from the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, Syrophoenician is just a kind of a big word that simply means she's part... Syrian. She's part Phoenician, right? That's who she is. And in Matthew's account of this, Matthew says she's a Canaanite, right? And so we don't really know, but what we do know is this. It doesn't matter if she's Syrian, Phoenician, Canaanite. She is the opposite of Jesus, okay? Basically, what he's saying is she's not an Israelite. Like, she is the farthest thing from an Israelite. She is, in every way she performs, she is different than Jesus. And, and, and she's a Gentile of Gentiles and her and Jesus are like oil and water like they're never going to mix in a mil- culturally right in a million years this is never going to go well okay it's never going to go well so Jesus leaves this meeting with the Pharisees and he's ticked okay and you know he's ticked because he wants to get as far away from them as he possibly can. He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, this Gentile region where the Pharisees are never going to go. They're never going to find him. And he goes to a house and he says, man, I don't want anybody to know where I am. Right, this is vacation time for Jesus. He's just like, I can't deal with this anymore. Right? And so he goes there. But of course he's found. He's found by this woman who has a little girl who's demon possessed. She's an unclean spirit, Mark says. She's an unclean spirit. And she's heard that Jesus has the power to cleanse her little girl. So the first thing that I want you to see of of cultivated heart is that we need a heart. We need a heart um, desperate for Jesus. We need a heart that is desperate for Jesus. Not desperate for the capes of this world. Not desperate for money. Not desperate for social status. Not desperate for... uh, We need a heart that's desperate for Jesus. And some of you have experienced this. There's something that's happened in your life that's actually brought you here today. Like you're pursuing Jesus because something has caused desperation in you. For others of us, we need to be able to clear away all the clutter and just focus solely in on Christ and say, that's my only hope. And this woman, this unclean spirit in her daughter that's produced that in her, she realized, man, this is a problem that I can't solve. There's no way, there's no way that I'm ever going to solve this problem. Going on a diet is not going to solve this. Getting the right job is not going to solve this. Electing the right politicians is not going to solve this. There's no capes in the world that's going to solve this. she's, She's desperate to get to Jesus because she knows that he can. If you want to cultivate your heart, you need to increase your desperation for Jesus. And this is really the call of Mark's gospel. When we look at the people of Mark's gospel who receive kind of the most of Jesus... We see a desperate people. Right? We see the official whose, whose kid is dying, whose daughter's dying, doing anything to get to Jesus. We see the woman a couple weeks ago um, who was bleeding uh, right, for, for years and right and pushing through the crowd, doing anything to get to Jesus, just to touch his robe. And we see this woman, says, man, I'll do anything to get to Jesus. She knows her need, and so she's bucking all of these cultural taboos and she says I'm just going to do whatever I can get to to Jesus and she comes and she kneels before him saying Lord help me her posture and her persistence is driven by her desperation and see the trap of the cape chasing those cape the only thing that's going to break that is true desperation when you realize none of these things are going to work the only people who escape the arena with the matador are those who can see past the Cape. And desperation is the thing that's going to drive us there. The rich young ruler couldn't get there, right? If you guys remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do in order to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he begins to rattle them off. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept all this since I was a little boy. And the text says that Jesus looks at him and he loves him. He says, there's one thing you lack. Go home and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And the text says that he goes away sad because he had much wealth. The cape of wealth and success. That was his crutch. And he was convinced that, I mean, if he lost that, he he, he wouldn't be seen in the eyes of the world as somebody who had it together. He wouldn't, there's something, a voice inside of him from his heart saying, that idol is too precious. You can't give it up. Are you desperate enough to forsake everything to come after Jesus? I think the beautiful thing is this this idea of entering into the season of Lent and asking the question, man, what is in me that can no longer stay in me? What's a part of my life that can no longer be a part of my life if I'm going to come after Jesus? Is the same question we need to ask in order to increase our Desperation. What's the thing that I'm leaning on? What's the thing that I'm finding my identity in? What's the thing that that Satan is using to convince me that I'm going to create the solution to my problems? If today the blood of Jesus was removed from you, if today it all went away, what would you turn to? Does that make sense? If today, you didn't have Jesus anymore, you didn't have His grace and His mercy, what would you turn to? Would you turn to your family? Would they be the thing that satisfies? Would you turn to your wealth? Would you turn to your social status? Would you turn to your politics? Would you turn to the news? What would you turn to? That's the cape that you need to go after in order to increase your desperation for Jesus. Second thing we need, we need a heart with Jesus on the throne. I want to read to you real quick, we're running out of time, I want to read to you really quickly uh, Matthew's account of the story because Matthew gives it even greater context. Matthew was actually there. He says this in Matthew fifteen I'll put it up on the screen. The woman says, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. "'My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon.'" But he did not answer her word. Jesus doesn't respond. Jesus is silent. And his disciples came and he begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. She's bothering us. She's annoying. Send her away. And he answered. Now Jesus speaks. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered her, "It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." And she said, "Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table." What's going on? You see, when you when you look at this out of its context, it is insanely offensive. It really is, right? The disciples are like, "This this lady's annoying," and Jesus is like, "Yeah, listen." I came, I came for the house of Israel, right? The children, right? It's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Who's the dog? In this analogy, what? The woman. The woman's the dog. Like legitimately, that's what's happening. What? Is, what is wrong with Jesus? What is he doing? You see, Jesus isn't speaking to the woman, even though he is speaking to the woman. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Because these men have convinced themselves that they deserve to sit at the table. There, Jesus is speaking their language. She's a dog. We are the children. We deserve to be at the table. That's right. And they're nodding their head. At this point, they're nodding their head in agreement. Yep, that's right. That's, that's right. That's right. She needs to get lost. The dog needs to go. Let's go sit at the table. Let's, let's enjoy this meal. Jesus is speaking their mind and speaking their language. But the woman takes a completely different posture. Christ is the king of her heart. Look at how she addresses him from the get go. She's never met him before. And she says, Oh Lord, son of David, oh my king, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, from the lineage of the king, you are king. You are Lord. That's who He is. And it's just so foreign. Like, culturally, there's no way she gets there. Culturally, there's no way. She's a Gentile of Gentiles, but she has arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, from the the line of David. That's who He is. And she knows her place. She's so unbelievably wise, this woman. So incredibly smart. When Jesus says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, she says, yes, Lord. Again, who's the Lord? You're the Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You're the Lord, and you're the master of the table. And you're right. You're right. I am dog. True, right? That is my position in this relationship. You are the maker and the sustainer of the universe. I do not deserve to sit at the table. I do not deserve to be in the same room. But even the dogs can occasionally catch the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And So if I could just get a crumb from my daughter, that's all I need from the king of kings. That's all I'm looking for is a crumb. This is the posture of her heart. A cultivated heart says, Jesus is Christ. He's king and I'm not. He sits on the throne of my life. A cultivated heart says, I know who I am. I'm the dog and I know who Jesus is. He is the master of the table. The Pharisees would never admit that they're just one of the dogs No, they're the ones sitting at the table. They're the ones with the washed hands. They're the ones who are clean. They're the ones who are worthy. They're the ones who are accepted in the eyes of God. This woman, a Gentile of Gentiles, she's quick to confess that she is, in fact, unclean. She's not worthy of what's on the table. Yes, Lord, I'm nothing but a dog. She comes to him not pretending to be someone that she isn't. She comes to him weak. She comes to him unworthy. She comes to him unclean. She's not posing this as this perfect picture of herself. She's not dressed there in her Sunday best. She's not presenting a solution, saying, if you would just do this and fix this and then everything would be fine because I've got the solution. No. She comes empty before him. She's saying, I've got nothing. And what does Jesus give her? The scraps? No. He says, come on, come sit at the table. Just as she is. And so, so many of us in this room, we're like, I've got to get my life together. I've got to look like the people on social media. I've got to be successful. I've got to get all the things right in my career. I, I, I've got to do all the right things religiously. I've got to do all the right things politically. I need to fit into the culture of my day if Jesus is ever going to accept me. That's not true. he accepts her just as she is. A Gentile woman which in that culture and in that day would have been absolutely unacceptable for a Jewish man. Just come on. You can have the whole table. Come sit. He gives her everything. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Jesus rejects the Pharisees yells at them and gets angry at them and leaves to get away from them. He goes to a Gentile region to get away from them. And he accepts this woman, this Gentile woman. He accepts her just as she is because of the posture of their hearts. Not because of anything they're doing on the outside, because of who they are on the inside. Only Jesus can make clean the unclean. He has a solution to, 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 for this unclean spirit in this little girl, but he also has a solution for your unclean heart. That's why he came. The blood of Christ. Jesus goes to the cross to cleanse our hearts, to wash us, white as wool, pure as snow, so that we can come and sit at the table. On the cross, our sin is obliterated in the eyes of God. There is none left. It does not remain because we've been cleansed by his blood. He raises from the grave and he says, come sit at my table. Not because you've earned it, not because you've deserved it, not because you got your life together, but because Jesus gives his life for the dogs. Dallas Willard in that same book, The Renovation of the Heart, he says this He says, He, Jesus, saves us by a realistic restoration of our heart to God. Then by dwelling there, that's the table, it's our heart. With the Father, through the distinctively divine Spirit, the heart thus renovated and inhabited is the only real hope of humanity on earth. Jesus has the only solution to all the problems of humanity, the renovation of the human heart. And that's what he wants to do in you. And for some of you, he's done that in you. It's a praise be to the God of all things for cleansing my heart and taking up a residence there that I may never have a moment where I am unworthy of anything. Not because I've done something special. Not because I'm somebody special. I'm just the dog who's been saved by the blood of Christ. That's the reality. That's the posture that our hearts must take before him. And so let us be a people who go to him. Let us be a people of desperation. Let us be a people of humility. Let us be a people who understand that there's nothing in my life that makes me worthy. There's nothing that makes me better than. There's nothing that makes me superior in the eyes of God. Only the blood of Christ can do to that. Let's let the king of all be the king of our hearts. Let's go to him in desperation every day. And let's go to him now. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, this morning we come before you. And some of us, some of us in this place right now, we just need to pause and we just need to confess and, and declare that, man, we, we have positioned ourselves. We have bought into the lie that in some way, we form, we've earned worthiness. Whether it be in religion, or in status, or career, or politic, whatever it is, we've, we've convinced ourselves that we are actually pretty good. That God should like us, that you should give us some favor, because we've earned it. Right now, would your anger towards that idea... Bring concern to our hearts. And whatever cape we've been chasing, would it be, would it fade away? And we'd see the matador right there with his bloody sword. And would it drive us to desperation? Would it drive us to repentance? Would it drive us to confession? Would it make us realize that we're not a bull? There's a dirty dog in need of a Savior. And so would you come and would you rescue us? Would you redeem us today? Would you sanctify us a little bit more? Form us into your image. Increase our desperation. Increase our repentance. Take our hearts that have wandered and bring them back to you. Praising pray this in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus. Friends, let's stand, let's declare that, sing that over one another as we leave this morning.